Good afternoon. <laughs> I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today on Healthy Options, we're happy to welcome back author Florence Williams. In previous Healthy Options programs, Florence Williams spoke with us about her first two books, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative, and Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. She now has a new book for us to discuss, just released this month, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, She's an award-winning journalist, contributing editor at Outside Magazine, and a freelance writer for a wide array of publications, including the New York Times, National Geographic, Slate, O, the Oprah Magazine, Mother Jones, High Country News, and The Atlantic. Florence Williams is also the writer, host of two Gracie award-winning Audible original series, Breasts, Unbound, and The Three-Day Effect, as well as Outside Magazine's Double X Factor podcast. She's also a fellow at the Center for Humans and Nature and a visiting scholar at George Washington University, where her work focuses on the environment, health, and science. Welcome back to Healthy Options and WERU, Florence Williams. It's so good to talk with you again. Yay. Thanks for being Thank, thank you so much, Rhonda. It's great to be with you again. So I, I, I'm going to start at the end. Just as, as we've done, all my, my listeners here, we're very, very trauma literate here at, at Healthy Options. We talk about trauma and resiliency quite a bit. And um, we do know that when we talk about having come through a traumatic event or a traumatic adventure, um, um, we, we want to start at the end. So you've, you've had a, you had a 25 year marriage. It fell apart. You're in trauma. How are you now? How's it going now? Are you, are, oh, you, are you on the other end? <laughs> thanks, thanks for asking, Rhonda. I, I'm feeling great. <laughs> I'm feeling well now, four years later. Okay. Well, it does take time. Uh, but you started this journey because of the shock, because of the adventure. And, and how, how did that unfold for you? Yes, I, I think trauma adventure may be a, a kind of nice way to look at it. Um, for me, I, uh, I, well, as you mentioned, I was in a 25 year marriage. I actually had met my husband when I was 18. Um, so literally the first day of college, I met him. Um, I had never lived without him. And um, one day, I mean, I shouldn't have necessarily been surprised. I, our marriage wasn't perfect, but I thought it was, you know, I thought it was salvageable. I thought it was pretty good. I thought we were both um, reasonable people who could work things out. We had these two beautiful children, but unfortunately, um, you know, he had already kind of moved on <laughs> in his own mind, wasn't, wasn't in the same place. And um, I was really shocked. And I think that that's one of the kind of defining uh, emotions really of heartbreak that it's kind of stunning, even if it shouldn't have been a total surprise. Um, and so for me, I, I, I was so knocked out by how much it hurt by how much my body seemed to be affected. Uh, I, I felt like I'd been kind of plugged into an electrical socket, you know, that I was in this state of, of anxiety and stress, really, if that's an adrenaline response. Um, I felt unsafe. And I, and part of that is that I was, I was really afraid. I, I had turned 50. I didn't know what my future was going to be like. Um, I didn't know a lot of other people who were divorced my, my, in my peer group. Uh, and, uh, so, so, so that's how I knew that something really big was happening. And, and then there was a process in which I kind of discovered maybe there's information here that as a science journalist, 
you know, I can find out and, and my, where my curiosity was leading me, which in a way was a coping mechanism, you know, how, <laughs> how is my body reacting? It can this be helpful to other people? And, and soon enough, a book began. <laughs> There's a book here. So I want to show you a picture and I, and, and the, uh, I know we're on radio. Um, when there's a traumatic event, what happens to the nervous system, right? Our sympathetic nervous system goes into hypervigilance, right? We, or, right. or it goes into low. So here's a picture and, and people have seen this, um, on our, uh, before. This is our, uh, the traumatic event. And either you go into, hmm. to shock here, here's a normal nervous system or not normal, but, uh, when a resilient, when you have a shock, you know, somebody, um, Somebody uh, crosses you, the street in front of your car and you stop quickly. Oh my gosh. But then it's over and then you're, mm -hmm. you get back mm -hmm. into the nice normal Back to baseline, curve. sort of a low, it's just like a low rolling hill on the normal Ex picture. Exa exactly. And, and when we have the trauma, we either get stuck in high, hypervigilant, or we can, you know, people go to bed, you know, or shut totally, down. Yeah. and shut down. And here you are. So you, you were the, uh, like many of us, the, the hypervigilant responder yes. to trauma. Yes. And well, uh, you know, one of, one of the first, uh, conversations I had was with a neuroscientist who I really just ran into at a conference where I was talking about my nature fix book. And I said, can I ask you what is happening to my brain? And she sat me down. She was, she was very maternal and, um, lovely. Her name's Helen Fisher. Uh, she's well known as a writer of the anatomy of love. She often writes about kind of the neuroscience of love, but she also knows, thank goodness, about the neuroscience of heartbreak. And she said, yes, I can tell you exactly what's happening to you. Um, and, you know, what she said is that as mammals, we are designed really to live in groups. We are a hyper social species. And, and frankly, all, all mammals, um, live in groups. We're social, um, and, and in my first book, I wrote about lactation and the evolution of breastfeeding. You know, this is a, a defining trait of mammals. Um, we have this like literal attachment um, and it drives all sorts of other emotional attachments, of course. So, um, you know, she said when when we've been rejected by someone in love and when we have when we suffer a big attachment loss, either through death or divorce, you know, or something else, um, we feel like we're alone on the savannah. We feel Vulnerable. We feel like no one has our back, um, and and our bodies, um, you know, respond to this social stress as as if we are being circled by hyenas. I mean, it's really quite quite dramatic. Yeah. And so so yeah so so like I couldn't sleep. I dramatically lost a lot of weight. Um, I ended up getting diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. So my immune system literally freaked out. And and that actually that that question kind of became the defining backbone of the book. That sense of how how there's that cellular level of of trauma and and that attachment level. Yes, I mean we have these these really clear relationships between our emotional state and our physical bodies, and it's you know I, I think for a lot of us that's not intuitive. Um, we think emotions are emotions. It's happening in your head. You know, you're sad. You're heartbroken. Um, it's all a metaphor, right? But, but in fact, it's not a metaphor. <laughs> like our bodies are literally kind of broken. In some ways, our cells break down. Um, our leukocytes and our monocytes, our immune system cells end up breaking down. And, and, um, you know, eventually I ended up working with an immunogeneticist at UCLA. 
um, who has made a career of measuring people's blood for signs of loneliness and signs of their social state. And and I was so fascinated by that. And I, I said, well, can we, can we look at mine? Let's look at my blood, you know, five months after heartbreak, let's look at it nine months after heartbreak. Let's look at it 24 months after heartbreak. Um, and see if I'm getting better. And so, so that's what we did. So what did you learn? What did, what are the, what are the markers that were, what, that we need to know about? Yeah. I mean, it was so interesting. Um, well, Helen Fisher was right. You know, our bodies act as if we're under threat and, um, when we're alone and under threat, our immune cells respond in a really specific way. So, um, the, the theory is that when we're alone, kind of, you know, um, um, staggering through the jungle, <laughs> you know, in our, in our, you know, primordial state, um, we respond as though we're about to be injured or attacked. So our bodies actually put out a lot of inflammation. And, and this is, you know, kind of adaptive and helpful if, in fact, you are walking through the jungle by yourself, like you might injure yourself or you might get attacked. So you need to have this inflammatory response. But at the same time, our immune, our immune systems can't do everything at once. So it makes a decision. It makes a decision to pump out extra inflammation. Um, it, it turns out, of course, that that's not a good strategy for long-term health. Um, and it actually uh, dials down the immune system response to viruses, which are spread in groups. So when your body's alone, the immune system says, okay, we're not going to worry about fighting viruses right now. We're going to worry about fighting wounds and infections. Uh, well, that's not also not a really good response, you know, if there's a pandemic <laughs> or if, for example, you're battling HIV, which is um, one of the diseases that this immunogeneticist, Steve Cole, specializes in studying or started in studying. And he found that that men with HIV who did not have strong social support um, actually um, progressed to AIDS and died earlier um, than men who had social support. And, and that's when he thought, wow, our, our bodies really do respond to our, our social state and our social sense. And that's when he started looking at sort of just average, healthy, lonely people <laughs> and finding, oh, wow, they also are at great risk for dying earlier, contracting more illnesses and disease. Um, and, and psychologists knew this, you know, they knew that lonely people were getting sicker, but they didn't really know why. And so now we're sort of looking more at this at the cellular level and finding these pathways to disease. So we're looking at all the uh, the connections of the um, of, of hormones of inflammatory markers. We're also looking at that, at that sense of, of connection, right? That sense of what happens, what is it? Oxy, uh, oxytocin, um, all of those connective calming hormones. Yes. And, and the difference is too, when we're in the jungle or wherever, or <laughs> are out by ourselves, that is t not, not as consistent. It's a different, it, it's so persistent in our culture when we're when we're in that hyper vigilant state or we're in mm -hmm. that that traumatic sympathetic dominant state and you know you're we would assume that you're out alone in, by yourself in, but you're going back to your group at some point and you mm -hmm. you know when you're when we're looking at that metaphor or that that image that you that you created about how we're how we're wired but in modern society we may not be you know, we we live in our little houses. We're not necessarily. We Absolutely. have to look for our group 
and make our Absolutely. Group. In fact, we're, we're probably the only mammal species that um, actively participates in um, isolating ourselves and in breaking our attachments. So other, other mammals don't do that. Apes don't do that. I mean, we, we really, you know, we're supposed to not be alone. That's the way our nervous system is designed. Um, but our society has created these kinds of, um, it's sort of hyperjacked the circumstances in which we don't live like we were designed to live. Um, we live in apartments and we can call DoorDash and order food. We can order groceries. Um, we can turn on the TV and the internet and, and we can actually survive, you know, alone. And, and, and once you go down that route, it's actually kind of hard to sometimes put yourself back into society. Um, and, and that's one of these sort of tragic ironies of loneliness that there's this kind of, um, um, cycle that's not a virtuous cycle. It's, it's, it's a negative feedback loop. And the more time you spend alone, the harder it is. Um, to sort of um, reintegrate yourself, you know, into social life, you become um, more distrusting of other people. Um, you, um, you know, you sort of lose some social skills. And, and, and that's, of course, one of the great fears, I think, of this pandemic and of the lockdowns, especially when we look at children who are supposed to be learning social skills. And so many of them, you know, were home last year. Uh, I think, you know, everyone's just grateful that so many kids are now back. Yes, definitely. I, I know um, the people with little children in my life are all saying, this kid's supposed to be around other kids. Right. <laughs> right. We're, we're having a little problem here. <laughs> right. Um, what do you think the, the difference between solitude and loneliness? I, when I, as I was so struck by, by reading about loneliness in, in, in the book. And, you know, what is so, solitude sometimes a choice? People go on retreats. We Absolutely. go and learn a meditation and we go in our own area. But often if we're on retreat, unless people do go on their own solo retreats, often you're in a group as well. You're still with others meditating, but or not. <laughs> yeah, that's such an interesting question. You know, when you start looking at sort of mystics, for example, uh, and and spiritual leaders, uh, we, we do often find great um, uh, insight when we're alone. Um, but I think you're right that we consider that more solitude than uh, actual loneliness. So one thing I learned about loneliness while writing Heartbreak is that it's really a subjective experience. So you can be married and still feel lonely. You can live in a community or a city and still feel lonely. Uh, and you can literally live alone or on a retreat or wherever, or, or live alone all the time and feel like you have great friends who really do protect you uh, and do have your back and you don't feel lonely. So loneliness and social isolation are sort of two different things. Sometimes they are joined together. Um, there are more opportunities for loneliness, I think, in our culture where so many of us do live alone, unfortunately. Um, and I think with the mystics, it's, a, it's just an interesting kind of question. Like they, their brains are so in a higher plane through their meditative practice, that they are able to sort of counteract, I think, many of the nervous system problems that that the rest of us might face when we're when we're alone for a long time. I know there are studies where uh, spiritual masters or people who do this uh, 
continuously have had MRIs and such, and and the brain patterns are definitely different than someone That's who right. doesn't. Yeah. So we'll we'll uh, we'll perhaps aspire to our uh, enlightened state as we as we move <laughs> through modern the modern world. Um, you learned so much, and you also brought in so much from your other work. This idea of nature, going back to the river. There's a, you describe what it was to to be on a uh, was it about a month long journey of of getting back yes. to nature for you yes and- i mean the book is very personal you know it's very first person it's really about all the things i tried as well as the science of um you know what first of all what was happening to my body and then oh my gosh a lot is happening to my body i need to get better as soon as possible um as one as one scientist told me um psychologist heartbreak is one of the hidden landmines of human existence it can have really deep implications for our health. And so we need to get, we need to recover. <laughs> we need to recover sooner. And this is true of trauma in general. Like it's, it's, we, we need to figure out how to get better if we're going to be healthy to functioning people. If you just joined us, by the way, um, this is Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we're speaking with Florence Williams, writer, um, who is now uh, talking about her new book, Heartbreak, a personal and scientific journey. It did come out this month, and it's also um, on in an audio uh, audio version, so um, we can um, you can get it on on all of those uh, all of those channels. So, this idea of uh, of nature and part of the healing. Tell us a little bit about what what you learned about about that in your journey. Yes. So I had already written this book, The Nature Fix, (laughs) how being in nature makes us happier, healthier, and more creative. So I was already sort of primed to think, well, people who are struggling often find comfort and some healing in nature. I I didn't look a lot specifically at trauma in the first book. And I only, I only, uh, in the first book, I only, um, I, I sort of, you know, looked at doses of nature up to three days in the wilderness. And so I started thinking with heartbreak and trauma, well, what happens if I spend a lot more than three days? Will that be more powerful? <laughs> Will that be more healing? Will that be more effective? And so, of course, I knew that I wanted to seek some comfort uh, in the wild. But I also talked to this, I had a really interesting conversation with a psychologist who said, yeah, divorce is terrible for your health. Heartbreak is terrible for your health. Um, but we find the people who seem to do well and who are most resilient are the ones who are able to really experience awe and beauty. And I had never heard that as a kind of heartbreak cure. <laughs> um, what was it about experiencing awe, you know, that can make us get over heartbreak? And and she was just so fascinating to talk to. And it, it held out this tremendous hope for me that, okay, maybe I could, through beauty, learn to sort of calm you know, my nervous system and also feel connected, you know, to something outside myself. Um, we, it, it helps when you're sort of full of ruminating negativity, of course, you know, to, to feel like there's a world out there that's not just about your problems. Um, and that um, when we experience awe, it also gives us just some perspective, you know, it's, it's a very healthy emotion. Only recently studied actually in, in positive psychology. Um, and uh, it turns out to be this really fundamental human emotion because not only does it make us feel connected to sort of the beautiful thing that we're in the midst of, but also to each other. So it's a really powerful connecting 
which, which when you're feeling lonely, you know, is, is a great experience to have. And so I wanted to try that. So I wanted to spend 30, I, 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 I did this, I planned this river trip for 30 days um, running the green river in Utah. And I ended up doing half of it with friends or family members. And then about half of it solo, uh, because I thought I needed to learn how to be alone comfortably. I needed to learn how to feel self-reliant. You know, I was going to be on my own now. And, um, I, I wanted to sort of grasp that and not feel so freaked out by it. And I thought, well, in order to learn to be alone, I better just like go to the extreme and, and really just be alone <laughs> and see how, see if I could learn how to do it. And yes, and 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 you did it. Yes, I did it. I did it. it you know, but it wasn't. It, nature did not provide the instant cure. You know that that I mm, perhaps darn. hoped it would. And darn. you know that's kind of my brand. I'm like the nature fix queen. And suddenly I was like, oh, actually, nature's not enough. It's all. It's maybe part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Well, it's also, it also, you talked about to someone who said, write your own narrative. Now, was that Helen? It might have been <laughs> Helen Fisher. And a, cu- a couple of people said that. A couple yeah. of people. So you write your own narrative. And what is the goal? Is it, you know, well, of course, we live in, in our culture, instant fix. I'm going to do this. It's, that's it. I'm, I'm good. I've done it. Um, <laughs> and then you come back and your body says, yeah, that was helpful. But not not so much. Not so not much. So much. Not the whole thing. Not so much. And that there is that whole, you know, every cell is listening. There is an entire physical, emotional connection that that needs different pieces. So you need to talk to your brain. You need to talk to your I'm gonna write a book part of yourself, your left brain. You need to talk to that little scared kid, right? Going, Oh right. my gosh, we're Mom, where are you? <laughs> where are you? Where are you? Where are my people? That's right. And you also need to do these other things. Wow, look how gorgeous it is. So, so you did you did a lot of that, and and you learned a lot of that. I loved about the inflammation. So, where you did did you do the blood the blood before you went on the river trip? Yes. So, so the the river trip was in a way kind of a big intervention, right? So, I wanted to know you know, what's going to help me if I, if I go to nature and I look at my blood before I go and I look at my blood after I go, maybe we'll see this dramatic change and yay, I'll be cured. Um, so, you know, spoiler alert didn't, didn't happen that way. And, um, my, my blood looked pretty much the same before and after the trip. And, um, you know, the trip was only a month. It wasn't, it wasn't years. Um, and, in talking to Steve Cole at UCLA, he said, you know, let me repeat this. Humans aren't supposed to be alone and we're not supposed to be alone in the wilderness where there are all kinds of um, threats. So, uh, and I was like, right, that's true. And so my body still was hypervigilant in the wilderness alone because I had to rely on myself to survive. I had to pay attention all the time. I had to tie my canoe in, you know, perfectly every night because I didn't have another boat I could get in. I had to, um, you know, not cut myself, not set the beach on fire, not lose my gear, you know, not get bitten by a scorpion. You know, you have to pay attention in, in, in a particular way when you're alone because you really do only have yourself to count on. So the wilderness trip was fantastic 
for all kinds of things. I mean, I did learn how to meditate out there better. Um, I did find some peace and comfort and space to reflect on the marriage and reflect on the divorce and reflect on what I wanted to do next. I accessed a lot of, I think, bravery, frankly, and a self, a sense of self-confidence and mastery because I, I did it. You know, I, I, I could take care of myself and it was great to understand that. But in terms of actually calming the cells in my nervous system and, you know, you know, kind of, um, reducing the flood of norepinephrine and cortisol, that didn't happen uh, when, because, because I was alone. If I had been with other people, it, it probably would have. Because you would have had people on your back. So the, uh, with, uh, with, you know, having your right. back. So the first, the first two, the first few weeks you were with others and that yeah. felt. That was great. But, but I didn't test my blood. No, after two wouldn't weeks. that have been interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Right. Anyway. But I, you know, I was in the desert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, really, let's get real. There was no, there was no test tube right there. Um, right. And, and uh, yeah, so I think the combination I did was actually, it was, Sounds it was great. really instructive, you know, and I, and, and one of the lessons I have for my readers, you know, is um, it, nature can be really helpful, but um, it, it's it's maybe most helpful if you're there with other people, depending on what depending on what your goal is. You know, if your goal is to reflect and think and be spiritual, yeah, then being alone might be great. But if but if your nervous system's on high alert and you want to dial back your nervous system, um, might yeah. be helpful to feel safe. Right, that's the kind of right. the first key. A little bit more comfort, perhaps, in, in yes. being held a little bit more. You know, it, it's interesting when uh, that kind of trauma, that kind of separation happens. And, and I think I think it is, although it is, what did you say? Uh, and we know um, divorce is right up there with, with having lost someone through death. But the difference yeah. is with, with death is it's, it's not necessarily, you don't take it as a rejection. You don't right. think it about you. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe it. They're really so selfish dying on me. You know, although you may feel that, but you know, it's kind of, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. Well, I think um, there can be a lot of anger, you know, for being yeah. left. Yes. But that's I do think true. rejection, rejection um, offers its own unique array of, of <laughs> negative <laughs> thoughts and feelings. And in fact, there's a whole industry now or a whole field of psychology looking at sort of rejection and social ostracism uh, and sort of the, the really <laughs> the crappy things it, it does to us. So, so I, I, so did you, did you, were you pissed? Did you get angry? Do people get, I mean, yeah. like, like, and, and, you know, you get the necessarily the blame and shame, but what is wrong with this person for rejecting me? Oh Did, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and that, and I think that, that response is actually really helpful. Um, you know, you, a little bit of anger is really constructive. For one thing, it, it can help take the blame off yourself um, because there's a lot of shame uh, and a lot of, you know, guilt and a lot of, um, you know, low self-esteem associated with, with this kind of rejection. And if you can focus some of those negative feelings outward, that can be actually really constructive. Yeah, and, and I, I know you have a, a bit of a thing about cursing. Cursing helps. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that. It was only a sentence or two, but it seemed to I resonate. started cursing all the time. And and it, it just felt very satisfying. Uh, and then, of course, I looked into the science of it. And uh, there are studies 
showing that when people, um, for example, um, stick their arm in freezing water, which experimenters make them do in a lab, uh, and some of them are allowed to curse and some of them aren't, um, the ones who are allowed to curse actually can keep their hand in the water longer. They can sustain the pain. They don't feel as much pain. So there is something actually helpful about cursing. And, and it's probably, and sort of sport teams understand this too. You're, you know, you're kind of engaging a little bit of machismo, um, which may uh, up a little bit of healthy adrenaline, you know, to, to sort of get through this painful time. Yes. Okay. So, uh, but don't do it on the radio. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> right. This is a family radio. <laughs> that's it. That's exactly. Yes. Discussing, uh, yes. Trauma and resiliency. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you just joined us, I'm Rhonda Feynman. This is the healthy options program on WERU community radio. Our guest today is Florence Williams, the author of heartbreak, a personal and scientific journey. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, uh, some some other specifics about about our our nervous systems and our brains on on this kind of heartbreak, on on what on what happens. I I know you you talked about um, Mary Oliver to fall out of love with the ordinary, right? To look to the wild. We talk about being open and and um, awe. We also talk about how the cells remember everything. And what did you talk about? The, 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 uh, Tokotsu cardiomyopathy, my, uh, uh, myopathy. Say that three <laughs> That's times. That's a hard as, one. <laughs> yeah. And how our body listens. Let's talk about it. We know St- Steve Cole and his, and we, so now we were, we're testing all of your inflammatory markers and we're talking about, ah, uh, what, what else, what else did, did we learn a little bit about, um, about what's, what heartbreak means to our nervous system? Yeah. You know, I mean, I had always thought of heartbreak. Uh, as something that's in your head, something that's a metaphor. Um, but it, it turns out it's very literal. It, it can be very, very literal. Um, people who are experiencing a lot of grief often feel a lot of pressure on their chests. They feel a constriction and tightness in their chest. And, um, it turns out that about six or 7% of all heart attacks are actually not conventional heart attacks in which a, a piece of plaque sort of blocks an artery. Um, but this kind of emotion mediated, um, cardiac arrest, uh, and it's called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy. Um, it was named for a Japanese lobster pot. And what happens is there's an emotional shock and so much adrenaline is flooding your heart that, um, it gets distorted. Your heart distends, like the cells in your heart respond in a weird way so that the left ventricle balloons out and it looks like a lobster, a lobster pot. Um, and it stops working. And so, uh, in, in a certain percentage of those cases, you know, people go to the heart, the people go to the hospital. Um, there's new imaging now that shows that they didn't have a blockage, but that they have this weird distension. Um, and most of them recover fine. Um, but some of them will continue to have heart problems, uh, you know, for a long time and, and, and a certain percentage of them die. And, uh, it's especially common for some reason in postmenopausal women, uh, who have had an emotional shock. So it appears to be something protective actually about estrogen, um, in, in that particular instance. So, um, you know, there are, there are lots of examples of, you know, like a woman whose uh, husband dies or whose pet dies or who gets some other kind of shock. 
And um, I, I interview a woman in the book who was dumped by her boyfriend uh, in a very unceremonious way, 40, 41 years old, um, ended up um, having a, a Takotsubo attack. And, um, you know, she's fine now, fortunately. And I'm, I'm actually, it's in the audiobook. She's actually a voice, you know, in the, in the book, she read some of it. And uh, it was really lovely, lovely to have her participate in that. We did an enhanced audiobook so that there are actually a lot of voices from my reporting in the book, in, in the audiobook, which is fun. Um, so, so how did she recover? I mean, how, how do you recover from something like that? Um, what, I guess that's the major question. Well, it's, you know, how do any of us, right? How do any of us recover from, from this kind of heartbreak or trauma? I mean, she had the the cardiac stuff, but her heart was healthy. Um, You know, she, she didn't have a cholesterol problem or a blockage problem. It was really the emotions that she had to work on and get a handle on. And for her, like me, she found a lot of comfort in nature, um, spending time at the shore, you know, doing things that she loved on her bicycle and in a sea kayak and, um, for her, she was singing a lot and, and that was really helpful to her spending some time with friends. Uh, you know, we can experience awe through art, not just through nature. So people who find comfort in, in singing or dancing, um, or looking at art or making art in that, that can actually be a great pathway to healing as well. People have their soundtracks, the musical That's right. soundtracks. <laughs> That's right. That's um, right. So you know, and, and I um, was I was uh, talking to a psychologist friend um, about using they're using um, seeing the benefit of certain uh, psychotropic medications and drugs in in healing long term depression and also looking at this and you had some experience with that um, you've recovered from from that experience as well. Yeah, Having that I did. mystical transformative enlightenment moment. Tell tell us about that. Yeah, so I I ended up interviewing an awe researcher, psychologist at UC Berkeley, and um you know, he actually kind of advised me to try psilocybin to have an awe experience. You, you know, it, it's this kind of shortcut to awe where you really feel like yourself and your ego are kind of less significant. Um, you have these kind of universal mystical <laughs> experiences. If you're, if you are in a safe controlled setting, I had never done psychedelics before. Um, I, I, um, you know, sort of afraid of the loss of control and, and all that. And um, so I ended up working with a therapist actually in Portland, Oregon, and um, she, she helped create a, a setting that felt really safe and secure. And, um, she, you know, sat with me the whole time. Except I ended that up, little nap in the middle. Yes. Right. She did fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Which as a, yes. as a healthcare pre- pre- professional, I go, wow. Okay. I'm not just going to try that out every now and then, you know, maybe I'll just, I'll just kind of snooze yes. off while people are resting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually so glad you brought that up because I, you know, even though this book is about heartbreak, there are lots of funny moments in it. And yes. um, interesting <laughs> characters who I met. She was yes. definitely one of them. Um, but I did end up having really mystical, kind of fantastic trip. 
And it was one of the, maybe one of the most helpful things I did. It, it made me, you know, I, psilocybin are now being studied, especially um, as being effective for people who are facing terminal illness. That was kind of the first set of studies done in recent times um, where they were able to um, kind of set aside some of their fear about death. And uh, I, that's what I experienced. I experienced a real um, downshifting of my fear. You know, I became less afraid of the unknown um, in this really profound way. And, you know, and, and I found that that actually really helped me out when the pandemic came along, you know, not so long after um, where we all, you know, are suddenly facing uncertainty and fear and grief and loneliness. Um, I think the lessons of the book are actually really relevant for what we're all going through now. And, and for me, I, one of the things I learned was to really be more comfortable with uncertainty. That, and that, that's, that came away very loudly in the, in the book. And, and that, 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 that is the ambiguity. The uncertainty is just how we are. It's just the human condition. We are, that's right. we are that. Um, with, with, when you, when you did the psilocybin and, and others, did you, did you feel like you, many people describe that sense of oneness, that sense of we're all connected. How could we <laughs> ever think that we're separate? How can that ever be? You're, and, and that changes the brain. Yes. It really does. I felt that so strongly, uh, you know, in a way I never had before. And I, I know that really, um, you know, seasoned meditators, you know, can, can sort of get to that state where they, they kind of feel a dissolving of the boundary between self and other. Um, and it's, that is a very positive, uh, experience for us to have a positive emotion for us to feel. Um, but yeah, I, it was really, um, supercharged on, on the mushrooms. <laughs> I, I felt like I had all these incredible visions, like, um, we were uh, filaments of light. I was just picturing f- filaments of light, you know, sort of um, swimming through some kind of cosmos. And I was just one of those filaments of light. I had no idea which filament was me. Um, and sometimes I would swim around with one filament and sometimes with another filament. And we were all just in this kind of beautiful murmuration of, you know, kind of dancing, dancing little filaments of light. And, 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 and I had other, other, um, other visions that were kind of like that. Like I, I also pictured a, a, a like a bead curtain <laughs> and we were all these molecules, you know, in this bead curtain. And, um, and, and in fact, guess what? That is what we are. We are all a bunch of molecules and our emotions are also a bunch of molecules. And, and I very much had that insight on this trip. I was like, why do we take these emotions so seriously? They're just like chemicals in our brains. Yeah. It's really, they're just molecules, Not- people. Nothing is solid. Come on. Right. Right. Don't take it so seriously. That's right. Just really, we are molecules. Quantum, you're right, physics, right? That's Particle physics meets Florence Williams. <laughs> right? That wasn't a scary insight. It was actually no. a really benign insight. And, it was kind, and it was liberating. Beautiful. Liberating. And liberating. Because right. then it's not all about us, is it? And that was the other piece that you, you learned, right? The, the sense of purpose, somehow doing something outside of ourselves as connection. Talk yeah, I ended up, you know, I mean, I, felt, I ended up feeling like the pathway to healing from heartbreak is kind of threefold. It's uh, first calming down and then it's connecting, you know, to nature and to others. 
And then finally, it's purpose and meaning. And in fact, um, the immunologist I worked with at UCLA, he's you know done a number of studies that have shown that of the interventions you can do to try to improve people's immune systems and their gene expression, um, this sense of purpose is actually the strongest. It's the strongest um, uh, intervention that we can do. So it's not the, the cure to loneliness is not hanging out with other people. Interestingly, in, at least if you look at people's blood cells, um, the, the strongest cure to loneliness is a sense of purpose in your life. Um, and, and in fact, that often leads to these, you know, other benefits, like being with like-minded people who share your sense of purpose. I and mean, that's kind of a, the best, um, you know, that that's, that's the best outcome of all. So you have odd, you have, you're working with loneliness, you have to, to, un, I guess to create more connection, we have that sense of awe, we have that sense of purpose, and we have that sense of connection. And you said that, interestingly, that you didn't need closure in the, the way that you thought at the beginning of this journey. Can you talk about that? I think that would be interesting to, for people to hear about what, what, yeah, I think I kept hoping I would come to some sort of gatepost that would say, yay, you're done with heartbreak. Congratulations, you, you've arrived at a new country. <laughs> That's really nice. Um, and it doesn't work that way. You know, like grief, right? You don't, you, grief just doesn't, it doesn't just end. It becomes a, a part of you. It becomes integrated into who you are. Um, I really like this. Someone told me that, um, you know, when the brain is, um, uh, when it, when it, when, when, when there's a brain trauma, you know, the brain doesn't just heal. It, it forms kind of a bruise. Um, and other neurons grow around that bruise, but the bruise doesn't just go away. It kind of stays there. Um, and, and I, I like that image because it, it seemed to me that that's kind of what's happening with our hearts too, metaphorically, you know, that there are these fissures in our heart, but that, um, you know, we sort of, continue to grow around them and in a way that's informed by the scars you know the scars are part of who we are and um i think they also provide this this amazing opportunity for what what we call post-traumatic growth you know that once you've kind of hit bottom like that you be, do become more open you become more open to other people's pain um you become more compassionate you become more real about what your emotions are and more able to see them. And ultimately you actually become, I think, more capable of love. And that is ultimately kind of our highest human super fuel that we can love the way we can love. And, and I never would have thought that or experienced that, you know, if I hadn't had this, you know, this extreme kind of emotional trauma that I went through. And and how did the family, how did your kids do? How are, how are they? Because I know you have yeah, two kids. Yeah, my kids are amazing. They're amazing. They're total inspirations to me. Um, They're really close to both their dad and to me. And, um, you know, fortunately, our divorce was amicable. And we put on, we put on a good face for our kids and they put on a good face for each other. But I also think that they were able to talk about it. You know, my son he was, uh, you know, he was, I guess, uh, 15 at the time. And, you know, I just remember walking with him on several occasions where he would just sort of hold my hand and he'd say, mom, you know, I'm here if you ever want to talk. 
<laughs> so sweet. And, and I would say, wow, I'm sure if you ever want to talk, and, you know, I felt like we were sort of growing up in this way, kind of together a little bit. We were both kind of becoming people at the same time. And, and that was a really special experience. So the whole the whole family was able was able to to grow and and, and learn from this. Um, if you just joined us, I'm Rhonda Feynman. This is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. Our guest today is writer Florence Williams. We're talking about her newest book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. It's out in print form just this month. And also there's an audio book uh, form uh, as, as well. So we, what about openness? What, can you talk about what openness that, that came up and was it, it does, what, what did that mean in terms of part of the healing? One of your, uh, one of the, the scientists started talking about, about that as, and maybe it was Steve, Steve Cole, that sense of openness. Is that the expansion of our possibility? Would, would you say? This is super interesting. It, it really came up in the context of awe. Um, but it turns out it's, um, there are some psychologists who, uh, sort of ascribe to this um, personality, you know, trait theory stuff, which are that, you know, we have these five basic personality traits um, and they are things like extroversion versus introversion, um, conscientiousness, um, neuroticism. Uh, and one of them is openness. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's supposed to be a sort of, you know, not so movable personality trait. You know, it's kind of like, your personality is your personality and you're a, if you tend to be this neurotic, you're probably going to be this neurotic your whole life. If you tend to be this open to a new experience, and it's it, oh, so it's kind of like an openness to new experience. So it's people who are especially inclined toward um, curiosity towards um, sensory experiences. Um, it, it is generally associated with a lot of positive things like um, intellectual curiosity, but if you're too open like all these traits, you know, there's sort of plus sides and, and downsides. Um, you might be too easily distractible, you know, it's like, oh, actually that looks really interesting over there. I'm going to, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and go somewhere else. Um, so you don't necessarily want to be too open, but, but in general, it's considered a really positive and resilient trait, right. Along with things like curiosity also associated with resilience. Um, so it turns out, according to the psychologist, Paula Williams, who was the one who told me about beauty and awe that um, you can shift your degree of openness. If you can learn to become more receptive to awe and to beauty. And she believes that we can actually do this, that we can become more receptive to awe and beauty, more prone to seeing the beautiful in the everyday uh, through, um, you know, small exercises, um, or through large exercises, like going into the wilderness. Um, I participated in another study, um, where we were so-called microdosing awe. And this involved, um, finding one or two moments in the day when you could actually focus on something beautiful, like a flower on your street or a cloud formation and, um, stop what you're doing for a couple of breaths. And just look at this beautiful thing and attend to it, pay attention to it and breathe with it. That's it. It takes 30 seconds. If you do this two or three times a day, um, which I did, um, along with a whole bunch of other people on the study, 
And now there's data back from the study that, that people who did this practice for, you know, six weeks or eight weeks um, actually did feel better about depression. And they felt less anxious. They felt less depressed. Um, and they felt like they were able to sort of savor, right, moments of beauty. So openness turned out to be this really big deal because it's something that we can change in ourselves for the better. And, of course, transformation is um, a beautiful thing. If we can, if we can uh, get there, I, I think I've heard this. Um, I know I've heard this referred to. I think as gratitude, where you take a moment and you, and you, it really you're doing what you just described. The difference yes. is you have good brain science behind it now. Well, <laughs> but I think the, I think there's good science behind gratitude too. That that is supposed yes. to be another really really positive. Yes. yes. Well, that sense of, of just taking a moment and noticing the. Uh, Gorgeous crows in the tree, noticing the beautiful <laughs> snow on the ground, the ocean right in front of us here. <laughs> right, um, you're like you're very lucky. You're in a beautiful place. We, we, we I am, and 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 we we know we are uh, here in Maine. Yay, yay us. Yay. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and well, and you're in an urban setting, and yet and always can find the beauty in in nature there, right? The Potomac, the uh, that's right. That's right. And I, I talk about this a lot in, in my Nature Fix book, too, that um, if we kind of soften our definition of nature, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be a mountaintop, you know, with no people. Um, we we can find moments of nature, moments of beauty anywhere we are, including in a city. And, and sometimes that's by looking up <laughs> and seeing the moon or seeing the sun, sunset or sunrise. Right. Um, we can find it. It's That's there. right. Well, I grew up in New York, so we spent a lot of time in Central Park. Let's put it let's put it that way. I love so, Central Park. Yes, it is fantastic. Um yeah. you know, um there's there are other aspects of of uh, of of what what you learned um as well. You know, one of the things that we didn't talk about and we don't talk about often is when we talk about having trauma, we have we know that we we are flight and fright, but then there's also freeze. Then there's that sense of, of freeze. And I think everything that you're talking about are ways to soften the freeze. What, what, mm. what you say to actually come back in, and mm-hmm. it is through that level, level layer of sensation, that level of sensation, understanding what your body feels like that you even describe it as the tingling, as the, um, you know, whatever, uh, whatever your body was feeling, mm-hmm. that heaviness on your chest. So and I just want to remind us all that that all of these things of awe and beauty, wherever you are, are things that can help us come out of that that kind of, uh, of situation. Now, since we are talking about you coming out of a divorce situation, um, there are all these different ideas about when are you supposed to talk to people again, get back into a relationship. And you, you have a, a, a lot of it quote, advice <laughs> or, or contemplation. And, I, and after you brought some things up about, well, you know, I'd have to wait 12 years, if you know, by the, the <laughs> literature before I could have a relationship. Many of the people I spoke to since then say, oh, yeah, when, when I got divorced, you know, I had to, I, I started dating or not 
no one I'm with now, but it was definitely that ne that needing of connection that came up. And then other people were like, oh my God, that's the last thing I'd want to do. That was like, who needs someone else's crap when I'm already dealing with this? You know? So, <laughs> so uh, you have some thoughts about that as well in the last few minutes of, of our show. <laughs> well, I think your friends illustrate a good point, which is that, you know, all of us are going to respond differently and, you know, you need to be true to yourself. But um, for me, I, I had heard this conventional wisdom, you know, that you need to learn how to love yourself first and you need to take this time for yourself and, um, you know, um, you know, don't, don't even think about, you know, dating really right now. And um, I just didn't like that advice. I, I felt like I, um, <laughs> I wanted to be touched, you know, I, uh, this is part of feeling safe, um, was that I wanted, you know, some, some intimacy and, and for me, you know, that, that meant some physical intimacy. Um, you know, I was lucky for that for the most part, I did find people who were, um, trustworthy, but, uh, but not entirely, which you'll see if you read the book. So there, are, you know, you have to be careful. <laughs> And I'd be the last person to tell, tell people what to do in that regard or, or to, to offer advice. I think, I think that that's a really individual kind of decision and it's, it's a little bit perilous, but also um, potentially um, there's some, there's some, certainly some comfort and some literally warmth, um, you know, by being with another person that helps our human animal selves find some calm and find some comfort and find some peace. Right. Some just, and, and, and that again, those, those brain, the, the Oxycontin and the, uh, and for women, the estrogen and all of those hormonal and, and, um, brain, those synapses firing in a particular way that can really be quite comforting. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And oxytocin, not Oxycontin. Don't take that. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, right, right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, because yes. I, I was actually practicing, so I would say the right thing. Because <laughs> right, that's right, do not, right. that's Oxygen. right. And interesting about addiction as well. Just that that little bit at the end, at the end where you do talk about uh, some of the studies about addiction. And yeah, tell, I do tell talk us. about oxycontin. In fact, so you know, I mean, there's obviously a huge opioid problem in this country, and. Um, Opioids act on, well, opiates, um, the synthetic opiates act on the same, um, you know, sort of neurons in our brain and sensors in our brain that the natural opiates do of when we're in love and when we're in relationships. And so there does seem to be this kind of interesting relationship between feelings of loneliness and craving for um, substances that help, you know, sort of land on those receptors and satisfy those receptors. Um, and, and so how do you deal with the addiction crisis? Um, it turns out that, that you really need to replace those substances with human relationships and the most effective, um, kind of interventions seem to be ones that do, um, help find people, um, you know, find friendships and feel, um, a sense of belonging, you know, in a community or in a treatment program. And, and so I spend time in the recovery cafe, which is a national program um, that has these kinds of cafes and, and treatment programs set up where people be, join a, a circle, you know, of like six or seven people and people they um, meet with every week and they really support each other and they don't judge each other and they help each other. 
Um, and, and it turns out that, that this can be really kind of effective um, for helping break out of some of these patterns of addiction. I found it fascinating that the, that when they did the brain studies, that literally the, the same receptors, I, I just have to say that again, the same receptors for human connection were the ones that um, an, an, opi an opiate satisfied, yeah. which is so extraordinary if you think about yeah. it, about how complex and also how basic our human construct is really. So if we, it's really much simpler. I mean, it's, it's complicated because we have all these chemicals and such, but it's also really simple. Awe, connection, touch, love. Right. And purpose. <laughs> and, and purpose and openness. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think, uh, it, sometimes those, those things aren't so easy to go access and find. So, um, I think anything we can do to, support each other and um, to talk about these issues openly and honestly so you can remove some of the shame and stigma and then break down some of those barriers that are kind of keeping people isolated um, becomes a big part of the equation. So I really appreciate your having me on and this opportunity to talk about it. Well, I'm so thrilled. We are out of time. I can't believe it. We could just go on and on. There's so much to say. Our guest today on Healthy Options has been Florence Williams, the author of the new book and audio book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, just released this month. She is also the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative, and the book Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. Her website is FlorenceWilliams.com, where you can find many of her articles, podcasts, and videos, many hours of thought-provoking ideas and information. So check it out. Thank you so much, Florence Williams, for being with us again on Healthy Options. And if you missed any other part of this program or would like to share it, please look for it at the Public Affairs Archives on WERU.org. Thanks to Joel Mann and Amy Brown at WERU for engineering support, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health. <laughs>